Matthew 22, and we'll look at verses 1 through 22 this morning. If you were in Sunday school, we uh, Matt introduced the lesson by saying we were going to talk about a, a weddings and a funeral, so kind of that theme of, of rejoicing and sorrow. Well, in our passages today, we're talking about a wedding and taxes, so really the same thing, right? Uh, rejoicing and sorrow, and uh, it's that's enough joking around for now. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd help us as we as we dive into your word this morning. There's so much here, so much, Lord Jesus, uh, that you packed into this this parable and then this interaction with the, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Lord, the, it's so practical, yet it's so big. And uh, both of those things can be true at the same time. So, Lord, help us to really wrap our arms around the practical, what we can put to use, and around the big, Lord, would you just expand our, our minds a little bit, help us to understand a little bit, because there's great promises, but there's also big implications that I don't believe you want us to miss. So bless us now as we study your word. Lord Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, nearly 20 years ago, in October of 2003, there was a young man who would soon become a world-renowned superstar, and he stepped onto a, a basketball court playing in the NBA for the first time. He was 19 years old, straight out of high school in Akron, Ohio, never played a minute of college basketball. And uh, of course, you know, it's the name LeBron James. He was drafted right out of school by the Cleveland Cavaliers. Well, he played there with the Cavs for about eight years when finally he went up for free agency and decided that his, his playoff chances would be better elsewhere. And during this time, another basketball star, a little less well-known, but still famous, a guy named Kevin Garnett. He was older than LeBron, and he was asked about what it's like to be a free agent after so many years because Kevin Garnett had, had himself played for his own Minnesota Timberwolves for something like 13 or 14 years with little success, even though he was an excellent player. And when they asked him about that, he said, you can't get your youth back. He said, loyalty is great, but you can't get your youth back. He knew that firsthand. He was no longer a young rookie in basketball. He was in his mid-30s, and, and uh, though he was experiencing a little more success, no doubt he was wondering what things could have been like. Well, we all wrestle with these kind of things, opportunity versus loyalty. We make decisions often based on weighing these things against one another. This thought process creeps into to every part of our lives. Just this week, I was bemoaning and talking to Lizzie that my barber shop in Rutland had gone up another $5 for a haircut. And it took me three weeks to get an appointment to even go there. So Lizzie said, why don't you just go somewhere else? And I said, but I've been going there for eight years. I can't go anywhere else. Sometimes loyalty keeps us somewhere for silly reasons. Other times, though, we throw out loyalty for the sake of opportunity, don't we? Or at least when we perceive that there's a better opportunity. That's probably especially common with those of my generation. And maybe I'm outing myself here. Uh, I'll, I'll try to speak about my age group without including myself in it. But uh, whatever generational tendencies amount to, there's certainly a tendency among millennials and then Gen Zers to not commit to anything. 
uh, as someone my age, if you ask them to commit, they will probably say, yeah, I'll plan on that. And what they actually mean is, I'll give you a positive answer now, but if anything better comes up, I'll take that opportunity. Going back to the basketball players, while Kevin Garnett and LeBron James' experiences of, of loyalty being hurtful, that's sometimes the case. But more often, really, a lack of loyalty or commitment hurts everyone around, especially the individual. Well, in our passage today, Jesus gives an example, a cultural example in a parable of, about how true commitment to God is vital, true loyalty. And I struggle to even use that word because loyalty sometimes is blind, but commitment to God is is not that way, but it's vital. When we weigh what God has given against everything else, what he has said, what he has done, what he's revealed to us, we find that he is the ultimate treasure and the ultimate consideration in life. So before we jump in, we ask ourselves the question this morning, what do we truly prioritize in that way? What is the, a driving element in our, in our decision-making, in our thinking, in our planning? More specifically, when it comes to our relationship with the Creator, do we take that relationship casually and uh, play homage to it and sort of give a positive answer when it's convenient? Or are we truly committed to him as our Lord, our creator, and our king. This is a, sort of a theme for this morning. In creation, we are in God's image. And in Christ, you could say in new creation, we are God's chosen possession. So may we render, may we give to God the things that are God's. Let's read. We'll, we'll read first just down to verse number 14. This is the third, of course, of three parables. Wrapping it up, Jesus says, and again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. Well, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited we're not worthy. Go, therefore, to, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all who they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, 
bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. We'll stop there for now. We'll go through 22 later. Well, as the third of three parables told to the chief priests and the, the Pharisees, this story about a wedding, again, it would have been incredibly familiar culturally. The scene and the elements within it would have been almost mundane, except for one big detail. This grand feast put on by a king for his son was avoided by all the honored guests. Weddings in that day, especially a royal one, would have been a multi-day, perhaps even a week-long or longer event. It was an honor to be a guest at such a feast, especially one of high degree, like, like for the son of a king. And when we look at that, however we picture it, we, we have to understand that Jesus is holding up here God's dealing with his people in an extremely high regard. And he's showing that rejecting God's invitation, so to speak, in this way is not just a simple choice, but it's a choice that's a matter of life or death. We see first, if you're looking at the back of your bulletin, the outline there, we see those who were invited. Those listening to Jesus would have would have known this culture, this, this process. It was it was common to have a sort of a multi-stage invitation to a big event like this. And a lot of factors played into that. Number one, people didn't walk around wearing a watch so they could, they could tell the exact minute of the day. Number two, it was a little more difficult to predict just how long it was going to take to prepare a feast for hundreds of people that would last days or a week even. So a general invitation would go out to those invited, and they would say, there's going to be a wedding feast. You're invited. Expect to hear soon. And then at the expected time or at the, the correct time, another pronouncement would go out, and it would say to those invited, the feast is ready. Come on down. And that's what we see in this parable. The king, it says in verse 2 and 3, gave a wedding feast and sent his servants to call those who, who were invited. That, that little uh, phraseology there is important. These were the ones who, were, who had already been invited, and the, the message is simply, it's time. Come to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Much like the, the two parables before that we saw, Jesus is, is setting up the idea of, of God's chosen people, Israel, honoring or dishonoring what we would call an understanding, an agreement. We've seen in all these parables that God has been good to his people. He, he called them, protected them, preserved them. And it was when it was time, when it was time for the, the kingdom, he expected their fruit and their obedience. But when the announcement came, they refused to come. said they would not come. That's the same language that, that we, we saw in the first parable. Remember the, the, the son who the father said, son, go out and work in my vineyard today. And it said the son would not. It literally means he did not want to. It was the last thing he wanted. It was not his will. And here the same thing. These invitees to this grand feast, they got the news, it's ready, and they didn't want to go. Something better came up. 
Now, they'd already been invited, and by implication, they'd already accepted the invitation. But now that it was time, they, they didn't want to come. Now, there's two kind of responses here within this one group of people that Jesus talks about, uh, at least two negative responses. We see one, there's, there's an apathy, and also we see a hostility. First, apathy. It says they, they paid no attention. That's in verse number four when he, he sent the, uh, the, second inv- the second calling out. He said, tell them, the dinner's ready. I've killed the fatted calves. I've, I've set the tables. Tell them to come, it says in verse five. But they paid no attention, and they went off. And here's the apathetic group. They went off, one to his farm and another to his business. Now, notice this. They didn't even have a really good excuse. It's not like they all said, well, my father died, or I've come down with COVID-19, I can't come. No, they just, they just blew off the invitation for their normal everyday tasks. They didn't care. The king was calling them to a grand celebration of honor and majesty, but their own fields and their own businesses had become, in their minds, more important kingdoms. Now, this kind of apathy runs rampant today. It has always, really, but we see it today so much when it comes to God's call of the gospel. If, if you talk to most people who, who wouldn't claim to be believers about spiritual things, you probably will not be attacked or berated for speaking about Jesus. They, they may give a cordial response. They may agree to read a a piece of literature that you give to them, or they may talk about their own spiritual journey, but they'll simply leave it there. They don't see any glory or majesty in the message of the king. Like the people in the parable, they they see nothing worth adjusting their lives to. It's this kind of apathy, though, that it seems peaceful and harmless, that is dragging people to their doom. But there's another kind of negative response as well. There's also hostility. Now, this is more rare for us. In this case, the ones who didn't go to their businesses and their farms, they had nothing better to do except to kill the messengers, which is pretty severe. Now, we are not being killed yet for the sake of the message of the kingdom. But there is a case where some who have typically their own agenda or their own message that opposes Christ, or rather that Christ opposes, whether it's other religions or or sociological groups that are very hostile to the message of Jesus, especially to his overall way of life. Now, Jesus here was dealing with the the Judaism of his day, and he's referencing, as we saw in the second parable, how how through the years certain, certain of his people had killed the prophets and beat them. They were hostile to God's message. 
In our day, this hostility might come from those who have a, a political agenda or a social agenda that rubs up against Christ's high call to righteousness. We should be all the more ready in the days to come because this hostility was not new for Jesus and it's not going away anytime soon. These are the two responses, apathy and hostility. Now, there are two things that are important in this parable to know that sort of give us a key, a clue to understand the meaning. One, it would have been extremely odd, unheard of, that all the honored guests to a feast like this would, would all at once refuse to come. That's strange, which gives us a clue that Jesus is using that as a teaching tool. And second, it also is unheard of for a king to destroy a whole city because nobody came to his feast. Now, of course, they didn't just do that. They dishonored him and they killed his messengers. But those two things would have stuck out. They probably stick out to us and they would have stuck out to Jesus' audience. And he was saying to these men, remember, he's still talking to the Pharisees and the high priests. He's saying to these men and telling them that they could be classified as those already invited and that their rejection of God's display of revelation in this new inauguration of the kingdom, meaning Jesus, is not just dishonoring and uncalled for, but it's ultimately destructive. And we can say for us that rejection of what God has told us and what God is calling us to, whether through hostility or even just apathy, is always detrimental. It's why we asked at the onset, what, what is it that is truly driving us? What are we truly committed to? These leaders of Israel had given a, a verbal yes to God, but now when it came through, came to, to following his son, to following through, they're giving a resounding no. And Jesus is telling them that that will be their destruction and downfall. Dear ones, would we not respond to God with a, a, a casual and polite yes, only intending to say no when the rubber meets the road? Well, for time's sake, we move on to those who are, are now invited. We pick it up in verse number eight. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? The parable is, is short on details, but we can simply say that the fact that they were unworthy was made evident in the fact that they rejected the invitation. They didn't want to come to the feast. Their worthiness wasn't necessarily wrapped up in their status or stature. These are business owners, you know but simply in their relationship with the good offer of the king to come to my feast. And this idea of worthiness takes on a shape here in this parable because the offer now goes out in the streets to all who they can find, both good and bad. Good and bad? What about worthiness? Well, again, the worthiness 
wasn't being measured on, on the stature of the individual or their social class or means. Now the invitation is going out to all, and the king's desire is that his feast be filled. He wants his son to be greatly honored. And the worthy ones are the ones who actually now come. Now there's another element to that. We'll get to it in a minute. But in the same way, in the same way, God desires for his glory and the glory of Jesus to spread abroad and fill the earth. And the celebration of his kingdom is is no longer reserved for just those who, who kept up the religion, apparently. But this offer goes out to the poor and needy, to the people of the earth to the tax collectors and the prostitutes, like in the first parable, to Jew and Gentile. God's offer of invitation to his kingdom is far and wide. If the first were worthy, it wasn't because of what was in themselves initially, except for the fact that they were called and invited. And this might cause you to ask, am I worthy? You might hear or think of that question and and consider yourself entirely unworthy based on past failures or even your current struggles. But the invitation goes out to bad and good. And there is but one requirement, and we move on to see that. Verse 11, we pick up and we see those who attend. Verse 10, backing up a hair, the wedding hall was filled with with all that they found, both bad and good. The wedding hall was filled. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Now, Jesus could have ended the parable with with the the hall being filled and the king being happy and the son being honored. But he adds this one detail. It's important. The hall was filled. There were many people of all kinds celebrating and feasting, but one stuck out. And this one is a special case for this parable. So Jesus can tell us how important this idea is. This man came to the feast, somehow snuck in, got in without a wedding garment. Now, a wedding garment was not a necessarily a one-time thing that you kept in, in the, you know, the plastic wrapper from the dry cleaner and only broke it out then. A wedding garment was simply not your dirty work clothes. It was not your everyday, you know, toss them on, don't care what they really look like clothes. And in this culture, it, it was... It was a folly to show up to a feast like this in common clothes. And everybody has one on except this one guy. So we could say that the availability of the garment is is not the problem here. It's simply that this gentleman, an individual, didn't seem to have any regard for that need. What is the wedding garment picture here? Well, I think it pictures a couple things. One, 
this man loved the idea of this free invitation that he possibly would have never gotten before to come to this feast. But he wanted to come on his own terms. He didn't want to go with the requirements. He went with his own way of thinking. As I was sort of meditating on that this week, I thought of Cain and Abel. Cain appeared to be righteous in his actions on the outside. He was offering a sacrifice to God, but it was not the sacrifice that God required. In the same way, this man appeared to accept the invitation and he shows up, but it became clear he wasn't there to honor the king. He was there to have the free meal. Secondly, there's a little clue, because when, when the king asked this man in verse 12, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? What is his response? He has no response. He's speechless. And I believe he's speechless in the story Jesus is telling here because he knows he had no excuse. I mean, he could have come up with something. I was on my way here, and, you know, this, this wagon went by through a mud puddle, and it soiled my wedding garment. I had no choice but to change. Or I'm too poor. I don't have anything. But I was still invited, so I was hoping there could be an exception. No, he was speechless. He was without excuse. I think this picture's for us. The, the, the position of humanity who are invited to God's wedding feast for his son to his kingdom. But when showing up on our own terms, we're without excuse. We read in Romans 1 that God's invisible attributes, verse number 20, especially his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, as people, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thinking. This is the tale of the man with no wedding garment. He was without excuse. Now, this also reminds us of something else. We, we talked about this in, in Sunday school. I, I sort of kept my mouth shut then because I didn't want to preach my sermon twice. But uh, Isaiah 61, it speaks of rejoicing in the Lord. Verse 10, my soul shall exalt in my God because he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robes of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And there is this idea that, yes, we are covered. We are given God's righteous robe, or Christ's righteous robe. That is the idea of, of imputed righteousness. It's a, a righteousness that is not our own. Paul speaks of that in Philippians 3. It is a given righteousness. And that is one, maybe the big one. That's the start. But we cannot neglect that it is also God's will that we be sanctified. 
There's a practical righteousness that follows an imputed righteousness. We are robed in Christ's righteousness, but not only does our appearance change, we are also changing day by day. The author of the Hebrews tells us in chapter 12 that we will not see God without holiness. And that holiness is first and foremost given. But dear one, we also grow in it. And if you examine your life and and you think yourself to have been given Christ's righteous robe, but it's been years and years and there's no evidence that it's actually there, Don't allow yourself to be like this man who has no excuse. We are accepted by God, not for who we are. We're accepted in spite of who we are. Remember, we're the the highways and and hedges people that are invited to this feast. And our, our appearance and our stature is nothing, but we have no excuse for not having this robe that Christ offers by his grace. And the stakes are high. The man in this parable was was cast out into darkness where there is torment, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus closes the parable by saying this, for many are called but few are chosen. This is the the truth. The genuine call of God goes out. His invitation goes out, but few are chosen. Few accept it. Few find the righteous robe of God's gift, and few find his, his grace and sanctification and see this as beautiful and worthy. It's it's difficult to reason why, humanly speaking, because those of us who have eyes to see, look at what God has done, and we say, how could you miss this? And of course, we know as in all things, God is is sovereign, and he's working in his providence. And if we are at his feast, so to speak, it's because he's chosen us to be at his feast. And that's the amazing part of the story. The guests at God's feast are not worthy by their own worthiness. They're not worthy by their pedigree. They're worthy because God has chosen them and made them worthy. And the call goes out today. Many hear it. Many of you hear it. All are without excuse, but few are chosen. We may ponder at this and wonder why. We see both elements here. God's God's indisputable sovereignty, and also this element where as human creatures, we must choose. And all I can do is ask you now, do you hear the voice of the king's invitation today? And I don't just mean, do you hear me up here talking about it? But do you feel the pull of God and his spirit telling you that you must not decline this invitation. Do you genuinely see that the stakes are so high? And though many are called, few are chosen. Would you not delay and would you not refuse anymore? 
And beloved, if you, if you have heard that call, do you see the amazing and glorious truth that you are God's chosen and beloved guests? You were nobodies and nothings out on the highway corner, out on the streets, but God has chosen you and brought you in. And we must remember where we came from and not be proud or boastful or complacent at God's gracious gracious choice. Uh, I would encourage you to, to go to Romans 11 later and read Paul's plea to us as God's chosen people to tell us not to take it for granted. Just like the chief priests and the Pharisees who, who followed in thousands of years of tradition, yet they themselves rejected. So we must not assume that because we are in some traditional sense Christians or that we've been brought up in this way, that we have an automatic entry. We must come at God's calling and we must come robed in righteousness on that final day. Well, we go on from this parable, but there are ties to the next section. And we'll pick it up in verse number 15. Then, after this, they'd heard these three parables. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. They have no response to these three parables. They've got nothing to say. So they've got to find a way. How can we entangle him? So they sent, verse 16, their disciples to him along with Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? or not. Let's pause there. Now back in Matthew 17, we saw a similar situation where the Peter was sort of off by himself and he was faced with a question. Does your rabbi pay the temple tax? And the temple tax was a, a two drachma tax that all Jewish men were expected to pay. And you'll have to go back and read that story again. But in that case, Jesus highlighted the fact that he was free. He was God's son. The temple was, was for his father. He was free from paying that tax. But he would pay it in order not to cause those around him to stumble. He showed his humility and his mercy. And he shows us a better way, a righteous way. Well, in this situation, there's a tax also. And this one is a Roman tax. It was called a poll tax. And the question asked is not genuine this time, but it's a question in order to trap. And here's a, the classic speed trap, right? The Pharisees come up with this plot, and they must have thought that they would have got Jesus in an outright pickle. And uh, there's a lot here, but notice that this was all arranged, this whole scene. And the, 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 the people who asked the question were chosen, not out of goodwill, but they asked or they, they arranged it all in order to trap him, to entangle him, in order to divide a line. The Pharisees' intention was to snare. Now, this is always evil. A snare like this is a trap and a plan of, of the devil. Uh, Jesus 
here, though, not only avoided the snare, he used it as an opportunity to teach. Later on, Paul would write to young Timothy, and I think he must have, of course, learned this from hearing and reading of Jesus. But he said in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. This is what Jesus was doing. He wasn't quarreling. He was patiently correcting his opponents. Now, his chief opponent, of course, was the devil himself. But these Pharisees are being used as his servants, and Jesus shows us a good way. Now, it's not the Pharisees themselves who come, but they send, they send their young guys. They send their disciples. And we all know young men. They can be jealous and zealous for their positions and eager to be proven right. So they send, of course, two groups of people who disagree, the, the Pharisees' disciples and then these Herodians. And uh, these would have disagreed on a lot of things, but especially on taxes. The Pharisees and, and those like them typically despise the Roman taxes. The Herodians, however, was a smaller group that was sort of devoted to to Herod's lineage and Herod's dynasty. And uh, they typically saw taxes as a, as a good and necessary part of society, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, so to speak. So these two groups come and they, they sort of butter them up, don't they? they? They say, we know that whatever you tell us will be the final answer on this. I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but don't you see how important it is to come down on one side or the other here? We know you don't care about our opinions. We just want to hear the truth. In this question, of course, is it lawful? Is it good? Is it good, right, to pay taxes to Caesar? Well, that question was meant to trap Jesus, but Jesus gives an answer that sort of traps us because we must watch out for this attitude of, of using the truth in order to prove ourselves right or in or in order to weasel out of something like taxes jesus response to their question traps them not in the sense of a, a tripwire but it it traps them in the sense of turning their own evil intentions right back around and showing them what they really needed to be concerned about Verse 18, Jesus, aware of their malice, their evil intent, said, why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? So he sees right through it. And Jesus always sees right through hypocrisy. And he says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now, one more detail. It's important that behind part of this question was an attitude that many strict Jewish adherents held that it was unlawful to pay taxes ever to a Gentile ruler. And they, they drew that from Deuteronomy 17, 15, which says, You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now that was true. That was, that was the law of God. 
But here was the problem. These men didn't choose to be ruled by Caesar. They didn't vote Caesar in. They didn't willingly look to be part of the Roman alliance, so to speak. No, in fact, in reality, God placed them in this position. And it may have been less than ideal, but we know that God sets up kings and authorities, sometimes for the good of a nation, often for the chastisement of a nation. For Israel, they were coming off of 400 years of silence from God, a a sort of period of drought and curse. And the Roman overruling of them, especially within that that first century, was very new, and it was a big part of that. So yes, it would have been unlawful for them to choose. We're just going to give up and choose a Gentile ruler. They seem to be ruling the world anyway. But in this case, it was God who set up this ruler. So with that in mind, Jesus says in verse 20, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The question and, ample, uh, question and answer were simple. Whose image is on the coin? Well, it's, it's Caesar's. Well, then pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. Now, we are in our own tax season here in the United States. We've got a couple more months. Uh, many of you would probably like to ask Jesus the same question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to our government? (laughs) Don't you know, Lord, how wicked our rulers are? And he would probably say to us, yes, I do know how wicked your rulers are. I put them there. Well, well, don't, don't you know that the government and uh, they they support abortion and they fund unrighteous policies and spend unnecessary dollars on wars and Jesus would have said just pay your taxes. He might have said, don't you know that the society and government of Rome was no more righteous than yours? In fact, it was probably worse. And yet Jesus says, pay to Caesar the things that are his there's a really helpful principle here because Jesus is telling us that paying our taxes does not make us culpable for all the sins of the government. We are to, as much as possible, live at peace with those who God places over us. We are to to be subject, Romans 13, 1 tells us, to the governing authorities. There's no authority except those who've been instituted by God. We're told by Paul to pray for kings and rulers and those and authority, and he wrote that when Nero was ruling. But we don't even need to go to Paul to get that. Jesus is saying that here. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. Now we could keep it as a simple dollar for dollar comparison because God does ask us to be uh, generous and to give to our church and to give to those in need, but it is it's much more than even that. Because here's the principle, Caesar or the IRS can require our money. The federal government can require our time and and military service and the government can even require our life. 
But do you remember what Jesus said back in Matthew 10? Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The coin was in Caesar's image, and it was a picture of Caesar's little rule over his little kingdom. And that sounds silly to say because Rome was immense and powerful at that time. But do you realize that though the coin is in Caesar's image, we are in God's image, created to reflect and resemble him in limited but still very real ways. And not only that, we are God's creation. And a a further step in Christ, we are God's new creation, his chosen possession. Caesar may ask for our money, but God requires all of us because all things are his. We can pay our taxes and still have plenty of room to honor God. In fact, in doing so, we do honor God. It tells us that we can be good citizens and still be citizens of Christ's kingdom. But more than that, it tells us that taxes and things of society and government are so minuscule in comparison with the things of God's kingdom. Doing God's will, obeying him, serving, living joyfully in his ways, those things are so much more valuable than whatever your your tax preparer tells you that you owe the IRS this year. And you can almost see metaphorically Jesus holding up that coin with Caesar's image in such a loose way. And he says, oh, this, yeah, just, you can give that to Caesar, but give to God the things that are God's. And that is yourself. That's why later in scripture, we're told in Romans 12, that I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And of course, the words of Jesus in Matthew 6, where he told us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. LeBron James and Kevin Garnett may have been upset about their loyalty to their first NBA teams. But dear one, know this. You will never regret devotion to the King of Kings. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are God's chosen possession. Yeah. Do your part. Render to Caesar the things that are his, but give your all to your king. And if not, well, then hear the parable of the wedding feast. The invitation of Jesus has gone out to the highways. Will you come? Will you come clothed in his righteous wedding garment, 
Will you come into a life where you, you are growing by God's grace into his image day by day, finally to be received into the fullness of his kingdom? Will you come?